prosperous physician Thomas Wayne and his wife Martha and young son Bruce were leaving the movie house after a nighttime showing of The Mark of Zorro. They were robbed by a thief and trying to protect his family. He, Dr. Wayne, was unsuccessful, but his son, Bruce, was able to run away. The grief-stricken boy dedicated his existence to avenging his parents' murder, spending the rest of his life warring on criminals, and after years of training on his body and mind, he disguised himself as one who would put criminals away, terrorizing the lawbreakers. Now, it was known that a bat that flapped into your window was a bad omen. In the original tale, it said that one night, a bat flew in Bruce's window and thus born this weird avenger of the dark, Batman. Now, a part of Batman, as it's starting in the comics, there were multiple villains all throughout. You know, we remember Penguin, and uh, I never remember if Catwoman is a villain or a helper in that situation. But the, the most famed of them all is the Joker. The Joker was created in 1940, and he's known that after a horrible wreck where toxic chemicals fell upon him. His entire body and mind changed and all he could do or think about was evil. Having the well-known smile with the lipstick that goes way out in the green hair and the purple suit. And though he was created in 1940, his story didn't really come about until 1960. See, if you read the, the comics, in the early parts, the Joker, he's just doing those small theft things like, you know, stealing from a bank or whatnot. But by the time we get to 1960, he is delving into deep evil that changes the city of Gotham. In 2008, The Dark Knight came out, and it's been analyzed as a movie known for its limitations of morality and ethics. The short premise is that gangs of Gotham City are furious that Batman is constantly ruining their plans. And so all of these mafia bosses sit at a table together trying to figure out how do we get rid of Batman? How do we get our plans to work without him interfering? And in enters the Joker with a great plan that he, he is the only one that can get rid of Batman. And we see through the storyline, not just in the movie, but even through old comics, Batman is constantly confused by the desire 
of villains, especially the Joker, for evil and corruption. And as he finds out the Joker's plan to get rid of him, he gains wisdom from Alfred Pennyworth, his butler, but also the person who raises him after his parents pass away. And in his distress, Pennyworth says to him, Son, some men can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or even negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Psychologists have thought up a need of chaos scale. And it creates a bunch of statements of how much you agree with them or disagree with them on if you are some of those people that just want to see the world burn. Statements like, I need chaos around me. It's too boring if nothing wrong is going on. Or sometimes I just like destroying beautiful things. This seems to be the statements that encompass Pharaoh's motives through the beginning of Exodus. That it is Pharaoh that we notice is the villain that sits on the throne or even runs through the city with the grin and the green hair and the purple suit. It is Pharaoh who is constantly making plans for chaos to constantly sees power over the Hebrews. And by now, the part of the story, we've made it through the majority of the plagues, and we've just had the Passover, the tenth and final plague of murdering of the firstborn Egyptian household. And the Egyptians cried out to Pharaoh, get rid of them, save our lives, save us. If you are to be for us, then why are all of these things happening? We can live without the Israelites. We can live without them. We've already lost enough. So the Israelites leave. And I imagine that as they pack their bags, as they pack their ox and their donkeys and the horses and the things that they have and they begin to go out, there is some part of relief. There's some part of joy within them that no more, no more are they Pharaoh's slaves. No more are they making bricks. No more are they building constant buildings and walls. No more will they be beaten constantly. But then as the morning sun comes up, they hear the war cries, and they realize that it's not their people. that it's the Egyptians, that they hear the 
getting faster of the horses on the ground. And though they're farther away from them, they feel it as if it's thunder shaking the ground. And all of the relief and all of the joy that they had has left. And now they are running in fear for their lives. As they run, they find themselves stuck standing before a sea. It is said that when foreign feet hit the ground in Africa to gather people for the transatlantic slave trade, that when the coming of the enslaved people found themselves at the sea, they looked out and said, it is the sky kissing the sea. Because all that they could see was blue and knowing that they could not walk on water, knowing that they could not go out farther, that they were stuck and had no idea what a future would look like. And this is the same predicament the Israelites find themselves in, running from the sounds behind them, realizing there's nowhere to go but straight out. And I imagine they get to the place where the sky kisses the sea, and they said to Moses, why are we here? Was it because there wasn't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Why couldn't you have just left us alone and made everything okay It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die right here. And Moses says to the people, be not afraid. Stand firm and see deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians will never, never will you see them again. Before them is death. They, they don't have any boats to cross. They, they, they are sitting right here at the shore seeing water. The sea before him and the Egyptians behind them. What will they do now? It's like a great TV show that is happening and it pauses right at the cliffhanger and all of a sudden a commercial from Tide or OxyClean comes on and you're trying to figure out what's next. And when we come back, it's clear the only way to live, the only way to make it is to just move forward into the sea. There's a story in the Talmud about a, name, a man named Nachshon. He was a fifth generation descendant of Judah, the son of Jacob and a brother-in-law to Aaron. And seven days after leaving Egypt, the Israelites found themselves trapped between the raging sea and the Egyptian army. And then God gave Moses a command, speak to the people of Israel. 
The order was given to go forward, see or no see, but who would make the first move? And the story says that at that moment, Nachlan had a moment of bravery and came to the forefront and he jumped into the water. That when Israel stood facing the sea of reeds and the command was given to move forward, each of the tribes hesitated that we do not want to be the first to jump into the sea. So he saw what was happening and he moved forward, that he jumped out in faith. And as he jumped, the others began to jump, and the story goes that they're on their tippy toes, trying their hardest to make it, to breathe, to not drown, finding a way to make it through. And Moses calls out, Lord, my people are drowning, and God begins to move the wind the water's going back and forth. And as they're catching their breath, trying to go under, trying to get, they find themselves that no longer are they doing this because the floor of the sea has risen to their feet. And they find themselves in a posture of moving like this. All because they say that Nachshlan jumped into the water in faith, it gave the others faith to jump into. And through the faith of the Israelites, they see that God sees them trusting and that God moves the water. That God brings up the floor for firm foundation in order for them to walk upon. When I, I read this story, it makes me wonder what makes them jump. Yeah, there's faith, but what makes you jump into the sea not knowing if it's shallow or deep, whether you can swim or not? Trauma is, is a tricky thing. And even though you may leave a place that has harmed you or degraded you, the memory still stays in your bones. It stays ingrained in your mind and your body. Scientists have discovered that even as you sleep, that your body begins to twitch and move because of the trauma that you have had throughout the years of your life. And though their bodies had left Egypt, the memories and the burdens of the chains that held them still flashed before them. Moses, why have you brought us here to die? This can't be what you meant by bringing us out. This can't be what you meant by trusting God. We could have just died by the hands of Pharaoh and would have been just all right. And as the people arguing, Nachshon jumps on in. The memory of burdens, the memory of building edifices brick by brick, the thought of their children's children being bound by chains and beaten by guards. It's something about the trauma of that that makes him move forward to jump on. It makes them all move to say, never again shall it be. 
the trauma ingrained on their minds and on their bodies. So they jump. They jump on in. I know we don't really like to talk about our individual pharaohs that bind us, that takes hold of us, that seems like there's a chain on us that keep pulling even as we try to get away. I'm not talking about just corporate systems. I'm talking about the bounds of body shaming, the bounds of abuse, the bounds of addictions, the bounds of racism, the bounds of colonialism, the bounds of oppression and exploitation. And these bounds and these chains continue to hold us. And we find ourselves at the sea wondering, is it just easier to go on back to it or is it easier to jump out in faith? Is it easier just to let the burdens consume us or really try a new path, even if we can't see what the path really is? And I know it's not easy to say jump out on faith. That's not easy for me just to leave it there because they're, they're, that's hard. It's hard to leave an abusive relationship it's hard to break bounds and habits that have controlled us. And I hope that if those bounds are taking hold of you, I hope that you know you are safe in this church. That we are ready to jump in the water with you Whatever that looks like, wherever journey that may take us, that you're not alone jumping out on faith, that we are walking with you or we are going to be having our heads up, trying our best for the water not to take over, that we're going to do it together, that jumping out in faith is not doing it alone, but that there is a community of God circling around you, moving forward too. It's nothing easy about it. The text says, if we jump to chapter 15, that when they got to the other side, they danced. They danced because the threat of Pharaoh was no more. The threat of chains and burdens was no more. The threat of their children and their children's children and their children's children's children of being bound by the same chains was no more. because the bounds of injustice had been broken. My friends, let us walk into the seas together. You got my number, you got my email. Whatever you're dealing with, 
Let us do this together. Because it's nothing easy about breaking bounds and burdens and chains. Don't jump in the water alone. Amen.